Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creesman. And I'm Ira Creesman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on Final Fantasy VII. When last we left our heroes, we had heard from Cloud the story of the Nibelheim incident in Calm. We were in Calm hearing about the incident in Nibelheim. <laughs> that was a little bit confusingly stated. And, you know, got this big exposition about Cloud's past with a bunch of missing pieces and uh, proceeded to uh, rein in our first chocobo so that we could avoid a big, scary snake dragon critter named Midgar Zormer and get across the marsh uh, to the next stage, basically, of the story, only to discover that... Sephiroth himself, this now mythical but very real threat, uh, has killed a Midgar Zormer and impaled it on a tree, as one does, I suppose. <laughs> so the next thing to do is to enter the Mithril Mines. But before we do, I want to go back to Calm for a moment, because there are a couple things that some of the townsfolk say that I think is interesting. There's a person, uh, for example, who says... I hate to think of what life would be like without Shinra. Now we know what Shinra is like. We know uh, that they are the evil empire, but at the same time, they are providing the power that, that gives us electricity and heat uh, and, and runs modern civilization. So uh, yeah, on the one hand, evil empire, on the other hand, modern convenience. There's a kid uh, who says, Mako energy has made things more convenient, but a lot of plants and animals have been dying. Now, there's a woman who says, is it true Shinra makes monsters? And if you say yes, she says, well, either way, as long as we use reactors, we can't stand up to Shinra. And finally, there's a man who says, I have my health and enough to eat. All is well. So the, we, we find ourselves in this story torn between modern convenience and killing the planet. And I, you know, personally, I currently find myself torn between the modern convenience of, for example, having enough toilet paper and not wanting to go out during what turns out to be a global pandemic because I don't want to get sick and I don't want to become a carrier and get other people sick. So I, in a wildly appropriate timing situation, you know, replaying Final Fantasy VII at this time and eventually the Final Fantasy VII remake, yeah, it, it, it's really interesting how, how this game puts us in a position to both understand the modern convenience, which personally I'm not sure I could live without, and killing the planet. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's... One of the things I love about this one, and, and we've talked about this before, is that oftentimes in the game's past that they would make the moral dilemma a little bit easier to answer. And it's a bit less so in pretty much every aspect of Final Fantasy VII, including this one. And I want to highlight particularly what that woman said about they could be doing these horrible, terrible things, but, you know, I use their energy because I feel like that's such an important parallel to so many things going on in the world today that people feel that pull toward, but I participate. Yeah, I hate Monsanto, but I eat their food. Yeah, I don't like the big oil companies, but I drive a car. I care about the environment, but I do these things. I, I want to topple the duopoly, but I vote. I, you know, all of these things are sort of that catch-all internet meme that I actually really, really love of the old serfs saying, like, we need to have some rights. And then the other surf being like, yeah, or, or it's it's uh, society needs to be improved in some way, right? And then the other guy says, and yet you participate in society. And it's difficult when Shinra is powering your home 
and maybe the police keep you safe or the military keeps you safe. And so it's easier not to think about the consequences on others that could wind up at your door. And I think Final Fantasy VII makes an extraordinarily compelling argument that that's not good enough. It's not a good enough reason to ignore injustice and oppression and outright violence and, you know, destruction just because there may be some good things that come along with it that we ought to be able to find a better way to provide those things. So like you said, we captured a chocobo, we rode it across the marsh, we avoided the giant serpent, and now we head into the Mithril Mines to make our way to the town of Junan. The Mithril Mines have some pretty cool music. First of all. Sure. <laughs> it's actually a pretty short passage. Uh, there's some running around, monsters to fight, treasure to collect. The event that happens here is that we run into the Turks, speaking of cool music. Yeah. We run into Rude, who's the bald one, and he says, uh, and we, we've explained before that the translation of Final Fantasy VII is a bit wonky at times, but there's a, you know, you know what we do, right? And Cloud says, yeah, you kidnap people. He says, well, if you put it negatively, you could say that, but that's not all there is to it. And now we're introduced to a new character. We have met Reno, Rude, and Sang. Now we're introduced to the fourth Turk, Elena. Elena is a young blonde woman. She is dressed in a sharp suit like all the other Turks. We're quickly about to learn that she's new to the job. So she says, Sir, addressing Rude, I know you don't like speeches, so don't, first, uh, so don't force it. I am Elena. I'm the newest member of the Turks. Uh, thanks to what you did to Reno, we're shorthanded, so I got promoted. Anyhow, our mission is to find where Sephiroth is headed and to try to stop you every step of the way. So Elena has basically just given away the game. She's, she's explained what their mission is. And Singh, uh, who was apparently just down this other little corridor, walks on. He says, Elena, you talk too much. <laughs> so on the one hand, yes, she does. On the other hand, did you really have to just, like, come out of hiding to undercut your newest member? And the only woman of the group. So rude. Or Singh. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Uh, so he says, no need to tell them about our orders. Now get going and don't forget to file your report. Elena and Rude take off. But Rude says, Reno wants to see you after his injuries heal. He wants to show his affection with a new weapon. So a little foreshadowing that we're going to run into Reno again. So on on my most recent uh, playthrough, I did not have Aerith in my party at this point. So Seng asks after Aerith, you know, asks how she's doing. And then uh, when you say she's not here... He says, well, then give her my regards. So on the one hand, he kidnapped her. On the other hand, he does seem to at least have some amount of concern for her, whether or not it's personal or, or mission-related, I'm not sure. On the other side of the caves, we've got a couple of options here. So there's pretty clearly a, an important mountain peak ahead uh, that if you go towards, you will find out is Fort Condor. There's also some forests nearby. So let's go to the forests first. If you wander around the forests near Fort Condor, after a few fights, you can run into a mystery ninja. It's just a different kind so of here, <laughs> Right, right. So I feel like we should do a character study here of the character of Yuffie. What, what you do is you defeat this character in combat, and then she's sprawled out on the forest floor, and then, there, then there's a, uh, an interaction. And she is quite clearly fairly young. She's a, a, in her mid-teens. She's like, man, I can't believe I lost. 
you spiky-headed jerk, one more time. Let's go, one more time. Uh, and, and there's a, a series of back and forth where she kind of is bragging about her own skills and is accusing you of being scared. Uh, and if you do things, you know, if you, if you do the conversation right, she'll say, so you want me to join you, right? Because I'm so good. And you say, uh, sure, that's, that's right. And she says, well, I guess you brought me so bad, I can't refuse. All right, I'll go with you. <laughs> and then Cloud and his, his pals just sort of walk away. And she's like, oh, don't, I haven't even told you my name yet. I'm Yuffie, by the way. And then and she's like, ah, just as I planned. Now all I have to do is ellipsis. <laughs> so Yuffie, yeah, she, uh, she's the only ninja uh, you run into as a, as a playable character. She, she wields a big throwing star. Uh, she is not clad like any sort of uh, pop culture ninja I've ever seen before. She's very braggadocious. Braggadocio. Yeah. She has. She she brags a lot. She's very impressed with her own skills, uh, and people on the internet really seem to not like her. Yeah, she exists in a, a long line of a long tradition, a proud tradition, dare I say, of sort of younger, oftentimes comedic. Oftentimes women, but not always. Of course, I'm thinking in the next game, eight of Selfie fitting into this category. And ten, Riku, I think fits into the category. uh, That a lot of people find really irritating. And I don't know if that's because as adults, a lot of us just find teenagers irritating and they've, you know, uh, faithfully recreated that emotion inside of us. Um, I remember having this weird reaction to Yuffie for the main reason that you just mentioned, you know, I was used to my ninjas being quiet and stern and clad in black and uh, very mysterious and not a source of humor and bumbling around and get airsick and the things, you know, we'll, we'll come to learn about her later. And, but she really is when taken for what she is a source of joy and a, a sense of humor that the game desperately needs. I think that the story desperately needs. It's very dark and serious and sad. And yeah, I've, I've done a, a total 180 on her. And in fact, she might be the reason why, in future games, I would resist any temptation to, to dislike characters like Selfie or uh, whomever might fit that. In Final Fantasy Thirteen, Vanille is a character who's sort of ditzy and fun and goofy, and but has those younger, innocent tendencies, and people don't like her voice. And there's a, there's always something with certain female characters, I think, and. Yeah, I think it's uh, largely not a good reaction. I don't think it's a reaction to her as a quality of character. I think she's well-written. I think she fits the world and cast well. I think she gets to do some fun and interesting things once we get back to Wu-Tai and actually gets to represent you know, somebody from outside of this kind of monolithic viewpoint that we've had so far, even though the people are against Shinra, we never really get a sense that they're uh, against their country or that they had any problem with the war in Wutai or anything like that in the original game. And so uh, to meet her, I I just think she brings so much life and color to the world. Uh, I think she's a fantastic character. Uh, Not my favorite still, um, but... Uh, yeah, people like the hate on Yuffie can buzz off. Yeah, I also don't like the the hate of the character. She is, yeah, she she can be maybe a little annoying, but I don't, you know, she she's young and she's a bit naive. She also doesn't have a whole lot of patience for nuance in some ways. Uh, there'll be an exchange later on where she's like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. And it's like, well, you know, it was, things were a little more complicated. And she's like, no, you just shouldn't have done that. So I'll point it out when we get to it, assuming we get to it in this episode. The other thing you can do between here and Junin is Fort Condor. Much like the Colosseum in Final Fantasy VI, Fort Condor is one of my least favorite mechanics of Final Fantasy VII. But I like the story of it. So uh, there's a guard outside this sort of side cave who will explain that we've been fighting Shinra on this battlefield for a long time and we've settled in for a long war with them. Could you spare some time and help us fight them? And we are JRPG heroes, so we say, yes, of course. 
and the music in this place has got this kind of cool meditative quality to it. It's sort of a calm before the storm. It, it's at odds with what's coming up. Uh, and you get this cool cross-section map where there's all these cave rooms uh, and it's very rustic. It reminds me a lot actually of the Returner's hideout in Final Fantasy VI. There's a man here who will recognize Cloud's special eyes. It's worth remembering that people who have been infused with Mako to become soldiers have special eyes. Mm -hmm. And there's a man who will say, do you know what's at the top of this mountain? Cloud will say, yeah, there's a reactor and there's a condor. So it's pretty obvious from the world map that there's this giant bird on top of this mountain, but I didn't realize there was a reactor just from the world map. So the man explains, Shinra doesn't like the idea of having a condor on top of the reactor. Seems there's a special materia up there. And now that the condor's here, Shinra sent troops here. The military wants to get the condor and all the villagers off this mountain. But the condor is warming an egg, which only hatches once every few years. Now that strikes me as a weird translation thing because an egg only hatches once. Right. I imagine what they mean is that condors only uh, hatch every once, uh, only once every few years. So he explains that they're trying to hire uh, mercenaries to help them against Shinra and that they've sent their families away. And then we play a really annoying mini game. So, yeah, I distinctly recall thinking, whoa, this is going to be awesome. And shortly thereafter thinking, this sucks. <laughs> but I do hope, like, I feel like there was the potential here. I, I've talked a couple of times before, I think, about how uh, Final Fantasy VII kind of had eyes bigger than its stomach, had these huge ambitions, and I'm not sure that they were able to deliver on all of them. And years later, people would sort of pedantically and cynically go back and point out its flaws and be like, this can't be the best game of all time. It's got all of these flaws in it. And it's like trying a bunch of things that didn't ultimately pan out, but in no way detract from the experience otherwise, I don't really think counts as something having a flaw. That being said, uh, I think there's a real missed opportunity here to make the Fort Condor thing something a lot more fun rather than tedious and boring. Absolutely. It's, for one thing, it's just too slow. But yeah, I, th I think you're right. They they try for a lot of things. Not all of them are as cool as the motorcycle minigame. And and you know what? They just can't be. Right. They, like Not all of them can be winners. Uh, right. So I, I, I hope you're right. I hope in the remake, when, you know, when we get there eventually that they do something cool here. I just, uh, yeah, I feel like there is a lot of potential for the idea of kind of drafting your little army and uh, going out and having these little proxy battles and uh, making that into something cool. Kind of reminds me of like those old Suikoden games or Suikoden or however the hell you're supposed to pronounce <laughs> right, that. Right, That did the, that, this concept way better. So, yeah, I, I hope that... Um, like they've seemed to have done with everything else so far in the remake, that whenever when they get to this, they take something that was kind of lame but potentially interesting and just blow it up and make it super cool and epic and a fun thing you can totally just spend hours and hours and hours doing and, and lose yourself in like you can the Gold Saucer or, you know, other awesome minigames. Edit from the future, but holy cow, did they do exactly what I was hoping they would do here. So I, I couldn't help myself but jump in real quick and say, nailed it in the remake with Integrate and Fort Condor. It was so much fun, and this is exactly the kind of thing we were hoping for. So I, I couldn't help re-listening to this part of the conversation and going, yep, there it is. Right. And from a storyline point of view, it's worth noting that uh, winning this fight, it's it's not like the fight. It's like one of the fights there's about to be there will be more fights later that you can't really do right now so it's like what so i, I took 20 minutes to do this boring thing and now it didn't even matter fine fine i'll just yeah. go to jenin <laughs> yeah right right uh so in replays and i've had several over the years i tend to do minimal fort condor the absolute bare minimum right that is required uh, as tedious as I find some of the card games in like eight and nine and such, and I know you like them, but I found them kind of eh. This this one is far more obnoxious. 
How dare you? Look, we'll get there, but <laughs> get that blasphemy out of your mouth. Good thought sir. you might like that. All right. Uh, so let's get on to Jinan. That's the, the big thing that happens here. Jinan is a big harbor city. But more than that, it's a military base. And more than that, it's got a giant freaking gun uh, on the side of the cliff. Do you remember magazines, Drew? <laughs> yes. For the kids at home. Yeah. Uh, yeah, magazines were a print media. So, so yeah, we all know what magazines are. But it's a like print a paper ads, version of a website. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Or a blog even. So print ads, which now we would think of as like pop-up ads, used to be a big thing in magazines. And Square Enix did a big ad campaign that we talked about for Final Fantasy VII, but one of them was like a two-page full-color ad of the city of Junan. And it's just this giant military base on the side of a cliff with a huge freaking gun. And like, like huge, like you, there, there are no real-life cannons this size, right? Like even if you right. were to think of like people experiment, you know, the military experimenting with rail guns, they're not this big. This is huge, like overcompensating, almost comically big. And the print ad right. for this like game... Like the swords that Cloud and Sephiroth. Exactly <laughs> right. Exa a, and, yeah. yeah, and we had that yeah. conversation. Yeah. So the print ad said, someone get the guys who make cartridge games a blindfold and a cigarette. Oh, because, yeah, because damn. 1997 was real edgy. You had to be super <laughs> edgy in your, your gamer magazines at the time. Wow. <laughs> that's pretty good <laughs> uh, and, and it is like it's that's right it was both of those things it was uh, look what we can do we've got the technology so this guy's got a gigantic sword and that guy's got a gigantic sword and everything's big and bad and things are going to explode and there's going to be death and destruction and people are going to swear and we're going to put a giant fucking cannon on the side of this military base and like, yeah, that's that ultimately that is a part of the charm of Final Fantasy VII. Yes, some of it is done just to prove what the technology can do, but it also does serve a purpose for the size and scope of the story. And this canon will actually become an important part of the plot. And so it's not just about the grandeur of it, though clearly they, they weren't shy about showing it off. <laughs> Right, right. Show off think, their big cannon. Yeah. And yeah. I, th I think it is worth noting that, you know, Final Fantasy does go both ways. On the one hand, sometimes it is giant freaking gun. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, Let's Mosey and Crystal Chronicles. And I got to say, Nintendo uh, is doing just fine. Like Animal Crossing is all I see on Twitter right now. Right, right. I also think there's a comment to be made that ultimately the savior of the planet is not a big muscly man with a great huge weapon. So we're going to Jenin, but you can't go into the, the big glitzy part of Jenin, the, the, military, uh, the military base part of Jenin, when you're a bunch of uh, wanted eco-terrorists. So we go to the little fishing village that used to be the, the main attraction here. It seems Shinra has a predilection for building their giant metal, super progressive, and I, and I mean that in a technological sense, cities on top of little villages. Because remember, all of Midgar was built on top of these little villages, right? And then each sector used to be its own little village, and now it's, it's just a, a, a neighborhood with a number instead of a name. Well, there's this little fishing village underneath the military base, and all the people around here will talk about you know, ever since Shinra built that city up above during the war, there's been no fish in the water and the, and the pollution's gotten bad and nothing grows here anymore. So again, here's this giant corporation literally building their, their facility on top of, you know, on the backs of the people and making it so that they can't earn a living anymore. But you know what, Drew? Keep your politics out of my games. So whatever. Right, right, right. Like, that's what's so good. Like, it's not even especially subtle though <laughs> in some way i guess a character doesn't come right out and say wow they sure did step on the lower class by and there probably honestly is a character who said if you look there hard enough be. there probably yeah. is one who says that so 
Yeah, it's it's pretty clear the message they're trying to send here. So there's a big elevator that will take you up to the base, but it's guarded by a Shinra soldier. So we, you know, after wandering around and talking to people, you make your way down to the water's edge, and there's a little girl here. And she says, hey, Mr. Dolphin, my name's Priscilla. Now you say it. And there's a girl here talking to a dolphin. As one does. Because sure, why not? <laughs> and she sees you and says, hey, are you members of Shinra? And we're like, uh, nope. She goes, I don't believe you. Get out of here. So there's this little girl talking to a dolphin who, when JRPG heroes come down, like armed to the gills, says, I don't believe you. Get out of here. Yeah. So Priscilla has some guts. Yeah, badass. And then in one of the most unearned monster fights, you know, monster boss fights ever, just a giant sea monster comes out of nowhere and like attacks the dolphin and Priscilla tries to protect the dolphin and then it attacks Priscilla and then we're the good guys, so we fight the we, we fight the monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Again, why not? It's about to get weirder, so fine. Yeah, yeah. Hardly uh, <laughs> the weirdest thing that happens in this game. So the little girl is is not breathing, and the grandma comes down and shows you how to do CPR, and we've got another mini game where you do CPR and breathe into her lungs. So you save the little girl and grandma takes her up to her house uh, and then you go up to a house and they let you rest there because you, you rescued one of the villagers. And then we get that, that music that happens when Cloud's having one of his dissociative episodes. And, and the voice, whoever this voice is in his head says, that reminds me. He says, you again, who are you? Uh, you'll find out soon, but more importantly, five years ago, Cloud says, five years ago, Nibbleheim? When you went to Mount Nibble, Tifa was your guide, right? He says, yeah, that surprised me. But where was Tifa other than that? I don't know. It was a great chance for you two to see each other again. Why couldn't you see each other alone? And Cloud says, I don't know. I can't remember clearly. And our voice in our head very astutely says, why don't you try asking Tifa? Dude. That's so twisted. The the level of manipulation going on here is just insane. But this is, I think, the first time that... Cl Cloud obviously knows there's something going wrong. He knows he's been having these issues. He's been having these flashbacks. But, you know, it's just, it's just kind of a post-war PTSD thing. He's just having these unpleasant memories, whatever. I think this is the first time it occurs to him. There's something wrong. I'm, I'm missing information in my head that I should have. And like probably almost anyone would do when presented with that is he shoves it away as quickly as possible, tries to focus on the task at hand. Right. Well, so I mean, so so then we, you know we wake up right, and there's parade music, and it's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? But he does, to his credit, I think there's a there's a lot to critique Cloud about. He tries to avoid his issues, but to his credit, he is going to ask Tifa. You know, he's going to ask her the question. Right. He follows up. So, so we wake up, there's parade music going on, uh, and they're like, what, you know, he's like, what's going on? Oh, the, you know, the president's coming, there's going to be a thing. And the others leave, and he says, Tifa, when Sephiroth and I went to Nibelheim, where were you? And she kind of evades, she says, well, we saw each other, right? He goes, no, no, the other time. And she says a thing that seems really reasonable to me. It was five years ago, I don't remember. Now my memory is is mostly pretty sharp, but for certain things. Like I remember uh, going to Yankee Stadium, right? I don't necessarily uh, remember what the score was, but I remember going. I remember sure. when we went. So so it seems reasonable to say, you know, that was five years ago, I don't quite recall. Something seems to be strange outside, come quick. But obviously she, like this was a big moment, right? The town burned down. Right. And, and she's evading. So. Cloud's having memory issues, and Tifa either is also having memory issues or is trying to cover something up or is trying not to bring something up. Yeah, that's when it when it really starts to get a bit deeper, and if you're paying very close attention or 
better yet, upon rewatch, you really get, oh yeah, Tifa's struggling with this and she doesn't know exactly what's going on either. It's really cleverly written because, like you said, I think it's very believable that a person would respond that way. It's not just, uh, you know, for, for all we may have just had a, a boss fight completely out of nowhere, this is not just, um, you know, the old sitcom device of we're not going to solve the problem now, so we're going to have the characters do silly stuff or behave in a way they wouldn't so that we can continue to have this issue. This is, I think, a very believable near miss on them starting to uncover the truth about Cloud's past. So outside, Priscilla says, thank you for helping me. I'm sorry I mistook you for Shinra. Here, have some Shiva material. <laughs> uh, so this little girl just be chilling with the ice queen goddess of badassery? Look, if I were an ice queen goddess, I might hang out with a little girl who talks to dolphins. You know what? That actually, it brings it full circle. It all makes sense now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So there's the music. And we ask what's going on. And Priscilla says they're rehearsing a reception for the new president. And Barrett says, oh, Rufus, I'll have to pay my respects. And I wish I could do the voice, right? In fact, for, for those of us who listen, or for those who listen to our show, but maybe don't listen to other podcasts, you got to talk to the man who does the voice of Barrett. I did. That was super cool and fun on Crashing Game Night. Uh, yeah, we've retweeted that a couple of times. Uh, I can always post the link for it. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. Our, our guys get together and they uh, suppose that Rufus is going to cross the ocean from here, uh, assuming that Sephiroth has already crossed the ocean. Remember, we are pursuing Sephiroth to try to stop him from getting to the promised land. So they said, okay, we got to get up there. Uh, maybe we can climb the tower. And Priscilla says, no, no, there's a, there's a voltage. There's a high voltage current. Uh, running under the tower. If you try to climb, uh, you'll get zapped and you'll die. But Mr. Dolphin can help. And this is why I said things get weirder. So they decide to let Cloud try first. Priscilla has a whistle that will uh, have Mr. Dolphin come around and like throw her into the air. Uh, so you, again, another freaking minigame. You gotta blow the whistle at just the right moment to get Mr. Dolphin to leap Cloud up to this little protrusion thing so that you can then climb the rest of the way of the tower and avoid the electrical bit. And I had to try this over and over and over again, <laughs> and it was very difficult, and it shouldn't have been difficult, but it was. Yeah, this is another one. I'm fine if they totally leave out of the remake, but if they, if they keep this in and manage to make it somehow cool, then they are wizards and magicians. They can have all of the money and fine. <laughs> but, but this is one of those things where in any kind of adaptation, if it was left out, uh, I would not be heartbroken. Right, right. However, when you get to the top of the tower, it's, it's pre-rendered backgrounds are, can be extraordinarily beautiful. Like they did not have to go this hard on some of these backgrounds. But they did, and I love them for it. So you get yeah. to the top of this tower, and you, you end up on a landing pad. And the sky is beautiful and pink, and the, the sun is setting, and the, the clouds are, uh, are, are in just such a position as to catch the sunlight. And it's a beautiful sky, and you see the airship for the first time. It's this sleek silver machine vehicle. It's got these slowly twirling propellers uh it's really just like if this were a film that would be a money shot right and this this game is filled with them like sometimes for just a single moment we end up on this landing pad for a little while but there will be some later that i want to point out that's like just walking down the path it, yeah. it is just stunning sometimes how much work they put into some of these single scenes yeah, and they really are, I mean, they're like paintings in, in so many ways. And this one, you know, it's uh, like that Fight Club moment when you see a tiny bit of green while he's having those hesitations. Uh, and it's like, it's been such a dark and dreary game. And then to, it, it, it's so purposefully done inside of its context, too. It's, it's beautiful on its own just to look at the, the detail of it. But when taken after all the darkness and all of the kind of living and smog of mock, I don't know if it would be called whatever the Mako version of smog is. They talk about being able to um, smell it and taste it. And you talked about how it's creating monsters and stuff. We're finally away from there. We can see the sky and the sunset and this beautiful machine. And it's like, 
Oh, there's there's some beauty out there in the world outside of Midgar. It's really hard not to talk about the remake right now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> All the talk of like the water smelling bad. Oof. Yeah. Like Flint, Michigan, maybe, but no politics, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So it's just Cloud right now. The others say they'll follow. What they say is, Cloud, if you make it, we'll follow. Like, thanks, team. <laughs> if, well, if not, we're out of here, man. We will find a different way. <laughs> but he is a soldier and he is superhuman, so it's reasonable to expect that if anyone can do it, Cloud can do it. You hurry inside and there's, a, there's an officer. So the, the regular soldiers typically are in blue and the officers are in red, right? And an officer runs up to Cloud and is like, oh, there's going to be a fight. But no, he says, you're still dressed like that? Come here. And he drags you into this locker room. And he says, uh, you know, get dressed. The, the new president's coming. We got to look smart. Cloud's like, uh, okay, clandestine. I've got a giant sword on my back, but whatever. We can, sure, okay. We'll make it work. So he gets dressed in a Shinra uniform. And he says, man, this brings back memories. And that is one mm. of the most loaded words he could use right now. Mm. Not only that, but first class don't wear those uniforms. No, no. I mean, he does. He he has said that you know he had to be a soldier, uh, you know, like sure. a grunt first. But yeah, he's yeah. It's there's there's point, so yeah. much going on here. Mm-hmm. Ah, smart. He, you know, he says or he thinks, right? Uh, you know, I was so proud when I first put this on. I wonder when it was I couldn't stand it anymore. Mm. So you get some instructions about, uh, you remember the welcoming procedure, there's a song, we're going to march, so on and so forth. And then we are, so, so from the outside, Junin, you know, the, the military base built on top of the fishing village, is built up in terraces up this hill uh, or up this cliffside that supports the giant gun, right? So we, we go outside and we're treated to like, they're kind of townhouses, but they're really, like, if you look at your typical townhouses, they kind of all look, like, not literally all the same, but pretty much the same. These all look exactly the same. And they're these sort of metallic brown buildings, and they don't, like, they're not in disrepair. They're not, like, slummy, like the fishing village below. But they don't look great. It's not, like, first class. So, so even if you're living on the city on top of the town, you're still not living like the president. Yeah. There are these big red drapings with, with black markings. It really reminds me of the, the Gestalian drapings in Final Fantasy VI, which we yeah. uh, clearly tied to Nazi parallels. In, in case you missed it, like, yeah, this is the Empire. These are the bad guys. And there's a parade. And speaking of, of parallels, the, the march music is very, uh, you know upbeat march music it's kind of like yeah you know we're we're marching off to war and we're the heroes and we're gonna do the right thing and and you know god's on our side and whatever other it's very john philip Sousa. i actually get yeah. this one stuck in my head a lot for some reason it's never been one of my favorites but it's got it's very driving and it's very catchy and it um yeah it really reminds me of those john philip Sousa songs the yeah. big brass bands and kind of nationalistic celebration yeah. but Uematsu's managed to put some kind of dark undertones in there it, he's really good I don't know if you know this <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm gonna blow your mind with my musical analysis here being the musician that I am but he's good yeah he is yeah I, I like the uh, John Philip Sousa parallel because uh, Semper Fi was the parade song that we played when I was in marching band my freshman year of high school. And yeah, this sounds a lot like Semper Fi. So uh, there's a parade. Heidegger is at the front. He's the big military dude. Uh, he's marching at the front. There are soldiers marching in time. Rufus is in the back of a... The, all the, the cars in this game sort of look old-timey to me, but kind of fancy old-timey. And he's in this silver yeah. car, and he's in the back, and he's waving, and everyone's cheering. We have to go out and join the parade. So again, another mini game that I was really bad at. There's live TV ratings, so if you screw up, the TV ratings go down, and that it sort of determines what item you get. What kind of president would care about TV ratings? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, well, well done. Uh, so you've got to you got to like run into the back of the marching block, and you got to. Move, you got to push the buttons right so you move your gun in the right way. And, and yeah, it's, it's very much um, a military parade show, right? It's, it's uh, rolling the cannon or rolling the tanks down 
down the street as a show of force. So afterward, if you're anything like me, you do very poorly and the TV ratings go down. Uh, and then <laughs> the, the TV producer will say something like, send that guy a bomb and you'll get a grenade as an item. <laughs> That's funny. So there will be a conversation between Rufus, or excuse me, President Rufus Shinra and Heidegger mm. talking about, you know, is, is the airship ready? Heidegger says it's still being prepared. It'll be ready in three days. They mentioned the Galenka, which I think is a submarine that will come into play later. Mm-hmm. And then they take this elevator thing up the side of the cliff. We're sort of dismissed for a moment. One of the soldiers will say something interesting. He will say, a man in a black cape has been roaming the city, but we can't find him. He showed up a few days ago and killed a few of our soldiers. There's a rumor that it's Sephiroth. Now, we know that Sephiroth does not wear a cape. Dude wears a, a jacket. Is, are they just mistaking Sephiroth's long black jacket for a cape? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out later in the story. Yeah. The officer who's been ordering Claude around says uh, that we're supposed to send Rufus off at the dock, and he's going to keep drilling us until it's time. So we go back to the locker room, and there are a couple other soldiers there, and we, we practice how to move the gun around so we can do more of these uh, military exercises. Again, I don't know why our president would be interested in that, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, there is this fun moment where like, you have to have a cool finishing move at the end of your military exercise, and Cloud does the thing where he spins the sword around, except he does it with the gun, and they're all very impressed. <laughs> hey. Spinning move. You're going to go off to, to the dock to send Rufus off. Uh, there are a couple little things here. There's a doggy you can talk to. Rude, you see, goes off into an alleyway, and you can follow him down into an underground bar where he's, like, gambling or something. There's another bar along the way where the other Turks are hanging out. None of them recognize you because you're in full Shinra soldier, which includes a full face mask. Sure. But finally, we get down to the dock. We do the military exercise. Star Wars parallel, by the way. Dressing up as a stormtrooper. Ah, yes, very good. So uh, we have this little mini game where we do the military exercises. I was really bad at this one also. And there's a a president's mood gauge paralleling national leaders who... (laughs) who care about such things perhaps more than they should. And while you're doing this, there's this guard sort of standing by the doorway, not doing anything. It's like, why is that guard over there? And then maybe is that red 13 hiding in the back of the boat? Like not hiding very well, which is kind of hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Right before Rufus gets on the boat, he says uh, to Heidegger, once word gets out that Sephiroth's here, Cloud and his friends will show up. We can't have them getting in our way. And then like Heidegger laughs and, and, Rufus doesn't like it, and he calls him out on it. And Heidegger takes it out on some of the soldiers, just starts slapping them around. But we get to hear a little more gossip. We hear that Hojo has disappeared, has, has left a letter of recognition. So, uh, excuse me, a letter of resignation. So Professor Hojo, uh, who was the one who tried to get Red and Aerith to maybe breed, which was really weird and gross, is missing. No one knows where he is or where Sephiroth is, and they're worried that we're following them, which we are so good Good worry, I guess. The soldiers are dismissed and run off, and Cloud's just like, well, I guess I'll get on the boat now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's what happens in Jinnan. It's weird. It, it is <laughs> it's, kind of... It, it's an unusual episode, it, if you will. It is, but I think there's... you know, And I think we talked about it, but yeah, that the show of military force, right? The, the showing off how you control your gun having a parade, having the, uh, the march music, all to feed the ego of this new young president who also talks down to Heidegger, right? But who also expects Heidegger to continue to just work for him. You know, keep an eye out for Cloud. You know, we're, we're going to do this and that. And, and so, yeah, there's... Well, and also Cloud, you know, again, dressing up in that uniform again. Right. So there's some interesting things that go on here, but l- largely this is a... I feel like it, it goes to extend our understanding of Cloud's character and Rufus's character, but it's kind of a, a thing without significance, except for that this gun is going to come into play later. Right. But really, nothing happens. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So the music on the ship is kind of lighthearted at first. It's... Uh, you, you can walk around and talk to some of the sailors and stuff. They don't seem too terribly worried uh, because, again, we're in uniform and we'll begin to find our party members. So Yuffie is in a sailor outfit and she's seasick. 
Uh, Aerith is in a Shinra uniform. She asks if you saw the airship and she really hopes to get to ride one one day. Tifa's in a Shinra uniform. She talks about really hating the uniform. Red is also in a Shinra uniform and he's on his <laughs> hind feet and like he's really pulling off looking like a human, I guess. Uh, it's pretty funny. Uh, that'll be interesting to see recreated. One of the, um, the, for some reason, this moment seems to land with people more than others because it's utterly ridiculous, but it's also hilarious. So there yeah. you go. I mean, you know, dogs can get up on their hind feet, but also his tail sticking out of the back of the uniform. So yeah. whatever, I guess. <laughs> Got him fooled. So if you go around to the bridge, you can find Barrett also in a sailor outfit, trying to peek in the window. And he sees Rufus and Heidegger there. He says, there they are, but we can't do anything to them. And I'm thinking, like, why not? You've got a gun on your arm. You just shoot right through the glass. He's showing restraint, Barrett is. But then a siren goes off and we hear an announcement. Uh, You know, there are emergency reports of a stowaway. And that's when the spooky music kicks in. Uh, So we go below decks and we go to the engine room. Uh, because if there's a stowaway, if it's not us, because we're all here, like we can see all our guys, they're not looking for us, must be Sephiroth. Because that's the only other character we know in the game who could possibly <laughs> be on a ship right now. That's right. That's right. So you go below decks and the soldiers down here and the, and the guys in the sailor outfits are all sprawled out. And you go into the engine room, you get the heartbeat sound, right? And there's this guy standing at the end of the room. And if you go and you, you talk to him, uh, it'll turn around real slowly and then collapse into you and then disappear, which I think means he dies in video game terms. Yeah, that's right. Okay. I believe that's correct. And then Sephiroth rises up through the floor. He phases through the floor like Shadowcat of the X-Men. <laughs> that's right. And Cloud says, Sephiroth, you're alive! I'm like, I, I think we were pretty, I think we were there, Cloud, but all right, yes, yes, he's alive. He's yeah. right there, we can see him. And Sephiroth says, who are you? Like, wait, what? Yeah. What? Like, that sends a chill down your spine. Hold on a minute. (laughs) This is what we've been doing this whole time. I just told this whole story. Haven't you been messing with me all game? Though he doesn't necessarily know that, but you... Right. You know? Right. (laughs) And Cloud says, you don't remember me. I'm Cloud. And Sephiroth ignores that statement and says, The time is now. The time for what, you ask? I don't know. Thanks, bud. <laughs> so there's uh, some flashes of light, and, and Sephiroth sort of like he teleports, and like suddenly his face fills the, the screen, and then he flies off. And then there's boss battle music, and you fight this big non human mutant thingy. Um, of course. And, and after the fight, there's this squiggly arm thing, and Cloud says, Genova, or the arm of Genova. And Tifa says, he's been carrying this thing around, which is a good observation, Tifa. What the heck has Sephiroth been carrying around one of the arms of his mother for? And what, what, Drew, what is going on? Yeah, that's pretty uh, macabre. <laughs> I believe it's the word. Uh, grotesque. So they say, uh, what does that mean, the time is now? And Tifa says, what I was just thinking, I am so confused. Cloud, can yeah. you explain what happened so far? And, and he, he does, but he just explains what we already know, that Sephiroth went in search for the promised land so he could rule the planet. Uh, that was five years ago. Now he's come back and killed President Shinra. Yes, we know we were just there. And just yeah. now we all saw him. So he's not dead. And he was carrying Genova, or at least a part of him. Like, uh, yeah. thanks for the the recap. Like, I think that goes to show that Cloud also doesn't know any more than the other heroes know. Yeah, and and it had to take us away from you know early in the game he knew so much more than they did, and he was presented that way. So now we're knocking him down a peg, and we're putting everybody into this place of just not knowing what's going to happen next.
So this is not the biggest odd tonal shift that we'll have in Final Fantasy VII. In fact, we're about to have a bigger one, uh, probably next episode. But then there's an announcement over the ship. We'll be docking in Costa del Sol in five minutes. Prepare for docking. Like, what about the, the stowaway? What about all these soldiers collapsed below decks? What about the big fight that just happened? We're, we're not worried about that? And on the one hand, that feels like a story convenience, but I feel like it's more just a we got to move on with the game kind of thing. Yeah, it's one of those if you had a little bit more time and space to stretch things out where some people might see, you know, filler or whatever. It, it, it really reminds me of, and again, we can't stay away from it too much, and this goes with the remake, a lot of the debate over Game of Thrones where the big critiques of it early on were that plot lines took forever to develop and characters would say they were going to do something and it'd take them three seasons to do it and you know it it would take four episodes for people to walk from one city to the next city Um, but it did give it this kind of weight and and you could allow moments to sit and and I, I do think ultimately it was better the critiques of the very final season that it, it was all just so rushed. Then all of a sudden, it's like big event after big event after big event, and it's over. So I think, you know, some of the limits of the technology at the time, it's like, well, I had a big event, but we, we, we got to get to the next thing. We can't just hang out on this boat for a while and digest this. So, no, but, I, but I think if you've got a little more time and space, that's one of those moments I'd like to see allowed to sit a little more. So at least we know which way Sephiroth is going. We know he's alive, and we know we need to continue to pursue him. So since we'll be docking in Costa del Sol in five minutes, uh, I suppose we should prepare for docking. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who's reached out to us. Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at FFWeeklyPod, or you can email us at FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. We are also on Patreon. The podcast is free to listen to on our Patreon page if you just click play on any given episode, but if you want to download the episodes to any of your normal podcast services, you can do so for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when we discover and visit the most magnificent spectacle in all of Gaia.